Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Today, we're going to be talking about hypertension in pregnancy. Now, this is a pretty broad topic, covers a lot of different diagnoses. So we're going to focus on how to differentiate between those different diagnoses and when that differentiation is actually important versus when it can be kind of backburnered while you take care of other obstetric issues in the patient. So first of all, how do we define hypertension? So anything, any blood pressure 140 over 90 or above is considered a hypertensive blood pressure. So 140 over 90 is what we would consider a mild range blood pressure. Um, And add 20 points to both the diastolic and systolic of that blood pressure, and then you have the severe range. So mild range, 140 over 90, severe range, 160 over 110. So anything greater than those numbers is going to be elevated blood pressure. Somebody can be diagnosed with a uh, hypertensive disorder if they have two or more elevated blood pressures greater than four hours apart. And that is for a um, hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. Now, if they had hypertensive pressures before pregnancy, obviously, then they just have hypertension outside of pregnancy or what OBs will call chronic hypertension. It's just a semantic difference. We call it chronic to differentiate that it's pre-existing hypertension. Any other specialty, it's just what they call hypertension. But because we have this gestational hypertension, we have preeclampsia, we have all these things we need to differentiate, we call that chronic hypertension. So you'll see um, people who have obviously blood pressures before pregnancy are going to be chronic. Also, if you have two or more elevated blood pressures before 20 weeks, we're going to call that chronic hypertension. Because that onset of blood pressure issues was so early on, um, physiologically, you should be actually having a decrease in your blood pressure as your blood volume is expanding so rapidly in that um, first trimester to the early second trimester. You should have decrease in your um, typical blood pressure. So you really shouldn't be being hypertensive unless you were hypertensive prior to pregnancy. So two or more blood pressures before 20 weeks, we're going to call chronic hypertension. If you have an onset, a new onset of elevated blood pressures after 20 weeks, where your typical first diagnosis is going to be something called gestational hypertension or high blood pressure just in pregnancy. Now, from here, we get into the spectrum. So Gestational hypertension is sort of similar to chronic hypertension, meaning it's an isolated elevation of blood pressure. Chronic just happened before pregnancy. Gestational just happens with pregnancy. So these women pretty much only have blood pressure issues. There's no other signs of impact on their other um, body systems. Once the blood pressure has been high enough, long enough, you can have impact on other body systems. You can have impact on your kidneys, on your liver, um, on your clotting abilities. And so these are all things that we're going to look for to help us differentiate between um, the progression down the spectrum. So for chronic hypertension, you progress to superimposed preeclampsia. 
If you have gestational hypertension, you would progress to just preeclampsia. And the reason that's different is because chronic hypertension, you're already hypertensive, and now we're, you are superimposing, you're having this additional preeclampsic um, symptoms, signs and symptoms on top of your already existing hypertension. Whereas if you're gestational hypertension, we just, we call it, we replace that gestational hypertension with the words preeclampsia, meaning it is now affecting other body systems. So the most common thing we talk about with preeclampsia, um, differentiating it from gestational hypertension is going to be proteinuria. So these blood pressures have impacted your kidney. Your, the fenestrations in your kidneys are opening. You're beginning to leak more and more. You're going to leak protein in your urine. Um, many years ago, one of the other diagnostic criteria that you'll probably still hear people talk about or comment on is people's edema. So you get a lot more dependent edema. This comes from the same place. You're opening the fenestrations in your blood vessels. And so you're leaking. You're losing that oncotic pressure that used to pull stuff back into your blood vessels. And so the protein spilling out of your blood vessels and all of the fluid is following, the plasma is following. And so people get very edematous, very swollen, um, particularly dependently. So in their lower limbs, um, um, these are going to be people that say, oh my gosh, when I get home at night, I just have to put my feet up and then I wake up four times overnight to pee because their body's trying desperately to reabsorb that fluid. Um, this is no longer part of the diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia, but you can often notice it going alongside with it because of that um, similar mechanism of action. Other things that differentiate preeclampsia um, or superimposed preeclampsia are going to be what we call neurologic symptoms. So Obviously, if it's impacting your CNS, your central nervous system, it's more concerning that um, you could have other sequelae. So anybody who has vision changes, and typically this is um, scotomata, which is going to be like black spots or fl floaters in your vision, people that just can't see a certain area, there's just blackness there. Um, or people who have a headache that doesn't go away with typical measures. Um, and so typical measures can include Tylenol is usually what we ask first. You know, did you try Tylenol? If it didn't go away with Tylenol, we can up it. We can try other medications um, if you're in the hospital or we can call them in. Um, if you're somebody who typically gets migraines, we want to rule out that it's not a migraine. Um, if it if you don't get migraines, but maybe it's a caffeine withdrawal headache, we can try things like Furacet, um, which has a little bit of caffeine and a little bit of... Um, barbiturate in it to help relieve a headache. Uh, you'll also see us use Reglan and Benadryl to try and break a headache or even magnesium. Hypomagnesium can cause um, headaches as well. So we want to make sure if it's a headache that goes away with any of those things, it's not likely due to your blood pressures. But if it doesn't go away at all, that can be a sign of neurologic features of preeclampsia or superimposed preeclampsia. Um, so those are the main symptomatic differences. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about labs in a second. But let's talk about somebody who comes in who's having these elevated blood pressures. Let's say they're a chronic hypertensive. They have high blood pressure before pregnancy and their blood pressures are slowly trending up and up and up. And obviously we don't want to let them get too high because all of this is to say, all of this superimposed preeclampsia and preeclampsia, what it means in Latin is before seizures. So um, anybody out there who watched Downton Abbey, Lady Sybil died of an eclamptic seizure after her delivery. That used to happen more often than we'd like to recall. And it actually was a significant source of maternal morbidity and mortality um, were these seizures. So all of this is to say, this is how we identify women at high, higher risk of having these peri-delivery seizures. Um, and this happens when their blood pressures go really high. So we need to control their blood pressures. So if you're chronic hypertensive, we'll use medications to do it, oral medications if possible. Um, for your shelf, the safest, most um, 
well-studied medication in pregnancy is going to be methyl dopa. Um, in, in clinical practice, almost nobody uses it anymore. It's not actually all that effective at bringing down blood pressures. So more often than not in clinical practice, you're going to see us using labetalol, hydralazine, and nifedipine. Um, occasionally, if somebody was on metoprolol or a separate beta blocker for uh, an arrhythmia or a um, some other indication of some cardiac disease, we, they can stay on metoprolol. It's just that metoprolol is better for rate control and doesn't actually do as much blood pressure control as labetalol does. Um, so we tend to favor labetalol in pregnancy. Um, and then hydralazine and the third one being nifedipine that we use a lot. Nifedipine being a calcium channel blocker. Um, nifedipine is becoming more and more common, I think, in part just because it is once a day rather than the other ones are two to three, two to four times a day. Um, and compliance, you know, it's easier to take a pill once a day than it is to remember to take a pill three or four times a day. Um, it's hard for any of us that are in the medical profession, much less somebody with three kids at home and who knows what else they got going on in life. Um, I just, in my own life, I know I would not be a very good patient taking trying to take something four times a day. So I find it hard to ask a patient to do so. Um, so oftentimes I'll start with nifedipine. One of the main complications of nifedipine or, or negative side effects is that some women will just get a headache with it. And so that can kind of blur your ability to differentiate a nifedipine headache from a neurologic symptom of preeclampsia. Um, so that's something I usually talk to patients about ahead of time, warn them. Um, and if they do tend to get headaches, uh, one of the earlier things you can do is try to switch off of it and see if that headache um, prodrome will uh, resolve. Um, the other thing to talk about is delivery timing. Um, all of these are indications to be delivered before your due date. Um, with the exception of if you have chronic hypertension, but you don't have a single issue with your blood pressure all pregnancy, um, and you're perfectly well controlled, you can go to your due date. We don't let you go past your due date, but you can go to your due date. Um, if you have gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, or superimposed preeclampsia without severe features, we um, typically deliver you somewhere between 37 um, weeks and zero days and 37 weeks and six days. Uh, that's just because anytime we're inducing somebody early, the reason why is going to be because there's a higher risk of IUFD um, and, and delivery complications if we allow you to go past that date. So with uh, hypertensive disorders, there's a higher risk of IUFD or um, abruption, placental issues, non-reassuring fetal heart tracings during labor um, and sections and things because that placenta has been taking a beating from these high blood pressures throughout your uh, pregnancy. I think about it the same way I think about hypertensive um, diseases affecting your heart. They affect the vasculature of your heart and beat them up. They cause these minor endothelial damages, which can then calcify um, and set up this perfect cascade for small myocardial infarctions or angina if they're just getting clogged but not quite occluded. Um, same thing can happen in the placenta. The placenta is only meant to live 40 weeks. Uh, so as you get close to that 40-week mark, if you've beat it up with all of these other comorbidities like blood pressure and diabetes and things, the placenta is going to crap out on you. It's not going to work well. It's not going to perfuse well. And labor is a freaking marathon. This kid has to survive all of these small um, sprints and I mean it the baby is working hard to just get its oxygen and its blood flow and if so if you wouldn't ask a 70 year old dude with these same comorbidities to run a marathon or do a circuit training um, that's kind of how I think about it that's what you're asking that placenta to do so it's a reason to start uh, beginning in the discussion about an induction or a earlier delivery um, 
because of these comorbidities earlier than their due date and definitely not letting them go past their due date if at all avoidable. Um, then the other thing that all of these diagnoses can carry are severe features. So severe features mean that this is not just a normal hypertensive disorder. This is above and beyond. They are at even higher risk for eclampsia. Um, or HELP syndrome, which is even the far end of the spectrum before eclampsia or mixed in there with it, you can have this HELP syndrome. Um, so let's talk first about severe features, then we'll talk about HELP syndrome and eclampsia. So for severe features, most commonly we will rule people in for severe features by blood pressure criteria. So what that means is they've had two or more severe range blood pressures at least four hours apart um, or high enough blood pressures that it's requiring IV or IR, meaning immediately release um, antihypertensives. So somebody comes into OB triage, their blood pressures are 160s to 170s over one teens. Um, you get an IV in them and they're still elevated. You're not gonna wait to send labs to do all these things. You're gonna start pushing blood pressures to prevent mom from having a stroke or a seizure or an abruption and creating a um, all around obstetric emergency for both mom and baby. Um, so we need, blood pressures are a very serious thing in obstetrics because you've got two patients, you've got two terribly, you know, terrible outcomes waiting to happen. We take them very seriously. Um, so severe features, blood pressure is the most common, over 160 or over 110, well, greater than or equal to the 160 or greater than or equal to 110. Um, that's going to be a severe blood pressure. Other severe features that can rule you in are the neurologic symptoms we talked about earlier. So headache, not relieved by your traditional medications, um, the vision symptoms, or um, obviously a seizure would rule you in as another neurologic symptom. Um, the final way to rule in would be laboratory findings. So the different things we look at in um, preeclampsia or superimposed preeclampsia you look at your proteinuria, which we take for granted. You, there's no such thing as severe proteinuria. You can have a lot of it in some patients, but you can't rule in for severe based on your proteinuria. Um, but you can rule in for severe based on your platelets. So if you have platelets less than 100, um, 100,000, you'll rule in for severe features. If you have an elevated creatinine, either twice um, your pre-gestational or what ends up actually happening in clinical practice is your, you know, first OB labs, your baseline creatinine, greater than twice the upper, um, greater than twice your baseline creatinine or greater than 1.1, whichever one is lower, um, or LFTs, so AST and ALT, greater than twice the upper limit of normal uh, for the reference range of your laboratory. So if you have either um, any of those three laboratory findings, so platelets less than 100, um, creatinine greater than 1.1 or greater than twice your baseline or LFTs greater than twice the upper limit of normal for your reference range at your laboratory, those will rule you in for severe features. Um, again, you don't need all of these things, one of them. So blood pressure, neurologic symptoms, or one of those three lab findings. That will give you severe features. That puts you at even higher risk for developing HELP syndrome, for having an eclamptic seizure, for having complications with your pregnancy. So all that being said, we deliver you even earlier. We tend to deliver them at 34 weeks or as soon as they're diagnosed, if they're diagnosed um, 
and they're worsening. So we'll deliver them before 34 weeks if they start having creatinine that's rising above 1.1 and difficult to control blood pressures or any other concerning symptoms. Um, Otherwise, we tend to deliver them right at 34 weeks if we're able to keep them stable that long. Uh, Things to keep in mind because we're talking really early gestational ages, I'll just mention briefly, we got to take care of baby too in these situations. So we're going to be talking about doing magnesium for um, neuroprotection if they're less than 32 weeks, in some places 33 weeks, but most often your test will use 32 weeks. Um, And uh, betamethasone or some variety of steroids for fetal lung maturity. The other thing to keep in mind if their platelets are super low, if they are going to want an epidural or um, a spinal for a section, they need to have elevated, they need to get higher platelets. So you can use steroids to boost up platelets if you have time. So if you know somebody is going to go for a C-section or is going to go, you're going to induce them soon and their platelets are super low, sometimes we can use um, steroids to artificially bump the platelets just to allow them to have neuroaxial anesthesia um, and they they don't risk having to go under general anesthesia for a C-section or something. All right, so that is severe features. The next step on the spectrum, so so far on the spectrum, we've talked about chronic hypertension and gestational hypertension, which is isolated blood pressure issues. Then we talked about preeclampsia or superimposed preeclampsia, which means it's affecting other organ systems. Then we talked about severe features, which means it's really affecting other organ systems, severely affecting other organ systems. And now we're getting into what's called HELP syndrome. So HELP syndrome, um, it's an acronym that stands for hemolysis. So you'll see schistocytes on a peripheral smear, Um, elevated uh, liver enzymes. So those that AST and ALT are going to be elevated um, and then low platelets. So H-E-L-L-P, low platelets are going to be your three of the diagnostic criteria for HELP syndrome. So if somebody has help, they require nearly immediate delivery. So you can sometimes hold off if mom is clinically stable to try to get some steroids and some magnesium on board for baby if baby's really young, you know, less than 32 weeks. But otherwise, it might mean literally an emergent delivery running to the C-section room and trying to get the baby out because mom is just um, not doing well. Um, help syndrome is one of the obstetric emergencies just because everybody bleeds at delivery, but if you have hemolysis, you're already having, you're becoming anemic already, and then you have low platelets, meaning you can't stop the bleeding once it starts. Um, and then once you get elevated liver enzymes, you start messing up the pH of your blood and de- um, creating more deficiencies in your coagulation cascade, which can lead to more and more bleeding and DIC. So um, something we take very seriously. And then at the far end, so the last step on this whole spectrum is eclampsia um, or seizures. So women are at risk of seizures when they have any of these syndromes. If they have severe features, we are worried enough about the risk of a seizure that we give a prophylactic um, anti-epileptic. And for OB, that is magnesium. So magnesium in the setting of um, any eclampsia risk factors will decrease your risk of having an eclamptic seizure. Uh, So anybody with severe features of any variety is going to get uh, magnesium for seizure prophylaxis. And we do it as a continuous infusion for somewhere between 12 and 24 hours after delivery. You do it when they're diagnosed with severe features. If you're going to deliver them imminently, you continue it through delivery and then for 12 to 24 hours post-delivery. And this should decrease the risk of having a seizure. Unfortunately, magnesium has its own risks. So magnesium can cause um, other side effects. The most common ones that moms will complain about is it just makes them feel blech, like it makes them feel lethargic, 
tired, a little bit nauseous, a little bit of a headache. They just feel crappy, kind of like they have the flu. So I warn people about that before I start it because I never like it to hit them like a ton of bricks. It's going to make you feel crappy, but you know what feels a lot crappier? Having a seizure. So it, you know, it sucks, but it's one of the best medications we have for this in pregnancy, unfortunately. Um, the other things it can do along those same lines, think about it. Mom's lethargic. Her reflexes will actually become lethargic. She will um, become hyporeflexic. So we check their reflexes every time we round on them. And we round on them fairly frequently when they're on magnesium, at least every two hours. And we're checking their reflexes. If they become hyporeflexic, it's a concern for magnesium toxicity. And that's concerning because it can cause overall CNS depression and um, respiratory depression. So we want to make sure that we are not um, overdosing them on the magnesium. Um, the other thing it can do is it can cause some issues with your um, breathing. It can cause pul- make you more likely to have pulmonary edema. And so we always listen to their lungs. We listen to their um, respirations and the bases of their lungs to make sure that they don't sound like they're developing any pulmonary edema. Um, preeclampsia is a risk factor for pulmonary edema and so is magnesium. So they're at high risk and if they can't breathe, they can't oxygenate, they can't oxygenate themselves or the baby. Um, so again, we're getting into a two person emergency, uh, which is always best to avoid. So anybody with magnesium, if you're rounding on them, check the reflexes, check their, um, lung sounds in both bases particularly, um, and then ask them about symptoms. Uh, if somebody has an epidural, it's easiest to check biceps, uh, reflexes because the epidural is going to depress their patellar reflexes. Um, and if, you know, if you have larger ladies with a lot of edema, it can also just be hard to physically support their leg and actually do their patellar reflexes while they're laying in bed. So bicep reflexes are really nice for that. Um, all right. And then if anybody has eclampsia before they've had their magnesium going, we can give rather than in a typical situation where you would give like um, Ativan uh, for an acute seizure, we actually will give IM, so intramuscular magnesium. So 10 milligrams total, five and five, usually, unfortunately, one in each butt cheek um, of large syringes of intramuscular magnesium to break the seizure um, because the mechanism and the pathophysiology of the seizure is different than a typical seizure. Um, you can use Ativan in a punch, pinch, but we often have uh, the magnesium on the floor for the obstetrics, and that is your first line if it is an eclamptic seizure. Um, these are pretty rare, thankfully, nowadays, um, but if you work in a community hospital or in a place that has um, a high-risk population, you do see them. I've, I've seen a fair number in um, the last, I've seen at least four in the last couple of years that I was either directly or peripherally involved in. Um, and we're not at a super high-risk center here in Philadelphia, but um, they do happen and they are uh, a very unique type of emergency. So good to know about. On your shelf, expect questions about magnesium, expect questions about diagnosing um, gestational hypertension versus preeclampsia. So preeclampsia has proteinuria. That's usually how they'll differentiate it on your shelf. Um, I think I saw one or two questions on my shelf about um, the therapeutic range for magnesium in your serum magnesium. It is 4.8 to 8.4 is the easiest way to remember it. Um, different references will have slightly different uh, ranges, but 4.8 to 8.4, so just reverse the numbers, that'll give you a pretty good range. If they're above that 8 or 8.4, they're likely super therapeutic and potentially toxic. Um, and I think that's what I remember at least one question on somebody who was um, having some symptoms of magnesium toxicity, and they asked what you should do, and you should shut off that magnesium drip. Um, if they have a super therapeutic level. 
Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day, every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a Procedure Ready or Clerkship Ready podcast for their specialty, pass along their information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.